Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, today on the Flyover Conservative Podcast, we have a special that we began a few holidays ago. He's a historian. Uh, he has a website called the AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. Um, other many, many books on socialism. He's, he's studied every constitution of every form of power throughout history. He studied the constitution of, of every one of the 13 colonies and how they're originally put together. He's a guy that I actually feel a little bit smarter. My self-esteem goes up just a little bit just when I hear him talk because I think it might kind of rub off on me just a little bit. He's an author. He's a historian. Um, his name is Bill Federer, and today he's the guest on the Flyover Conservative Show. Yay! Great to be with you. Great to be with you. It's great. It's great to have you. I want to highlight a book um, that kind of ties into the content we're going to talk today about the history of Thanksgiving, the history of this holiday, but really kind of a, a, a rewriting of the history that's taken place in America a little bit. But you wrote a book called Who is the King in America? And uh, that sounds kind of uh, uh, interesting and self-evident, but it's not as self-evident as people think. And uh, there's a lot of people that live in our country that don't really know how it happened. They think it was accidental or organic or a bunch of old guys around wrote stuff that's outdated and irrelevant. They don't, they don't realize it's a culmination of all of world history put together into one very fragile experiment. And, uh, uh, who's the King in America really breaks that down. And, uh, I want to highlight that today because I think knowledge is the key to us saving this fragile country that we have and people actually knowing and appreciating, you know, what, what, what God brought together. Yeah. You know, if I put a dot on a page and I ask you what, where the next dot's going to be, it could be anywhere. But if I show you all the dots preceding that dot and I ask you where the next dot's going to be, you can put a ruler up next to the previous ones and sort of do a little plotting and say, well, it's going to be up here somewhere. So if all yeah. you know is the present, you have no predictive ability. If you know where things came from, then you can sort of see where they're headed. And Winston Churchill said, the further back you look, the further forward you're likely to see. And so when we look back, we get a little perspective. Now, one of the things I did, I was fascinated with world government. And so I thought I'd go back and begin researching from the beginning of the invention of writing uh, the records to see what the most common form of government is. And so you go back to the um, cuneiform and you have Nimrod, Tower of Babel and and then you have um, Assyrian kings and Babylonian kings and Persian kings and uh, Egyptian pharaohs. And then you got Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Chandragupta in India and 5,000 years of Chinese emperors. And uh, then Roman Caesars and Attila the Hun and uh, Muslim sultans and then Genghis Khan. It's kings. The most common form of government is kings. Yeah. Power wants to concentrate into the hands of one person and it's in each of our own fallen, selfish human nature, you put some kids in a in a in, on a playground. One's the bully. You put some junior high girls in a clique. One's the diva. You put some people in the woods. One's an Indian chief. Put them in an inner city. One of them is a gang leader. And all a king is is a glorified gang leader. And it's a hierarchical system. Yeah. If you're friends with the king, you're more equal. If you're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king. You're dead. It's called treason. And this is the situation. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. So instead of king killing able with a rock, they can kill with a bronze weapon, iron weapon, failing spear, scimitar, sword, gunpowder. The weapon improves. And with technological advancements, kings can track more people. And I point out Augustus mm -hmm. Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called the census. 
if he could have had 5G and cell phones and satellites and cameras, he would have used that. And so uh, sure. as the time goes on, the, the king of England became the biggest king that the planet had ever seen. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, wow. America. He was a one world government guy. And with him at the top, and America's <laughs> founders never liked one world government guy. We don't like Klaus Schwab today. Right. Uh, and so America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. So the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. Hmm. So uh, all of our founders, for all their human faults and for all the people that don't like them, they gave you a present. And that present is you get to be the king of your own life, king with a little K. And then all of us together are the king of the country. And then for those from a spiritual perspective, you have the voluntary opportunity of submitting your life to Jesus the king of kings but it's voluntary psalms 110 says thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and so they fled from europe where kings were burning people at the stake for not believing the way they did they came to america and they said look jesus never forced anybody to follow him we can't force anybody to follow him god is only interested in a free will following um so they came up with freedom of conscience and so that's all what the colonial and the founding fathers, they get putting freedom of conscience. And it's based on this idea, God loves you. He wants you to love him back. But love by definition must be voluntary. And so God made you a spirit, mind, and body. And he wants to appeal to your mind and your heart and have you make a knowledgeable, willful decision to follow him, not one based on pain to your body where you're afraid you'll get an arm or leg your hand chopped off <laughs> right uh, if you don't say that you believe something so you really don't believe it but you're going to say you believe it because so william penn says force makes hypocrites tis persuasion only that makes converts so america was founded by people that believe the government should not force you to believe anything they shouldn't put out a mandate they shouldn't say that we've mandated that marriage has now changed and you can have polygamy and you can have all kinds of sexual relationships in a marriage and if you don't do with what we just mandated, we're going to criminalize you. We're going to call you hateful and we're going to get you to lose your job and get kicked out of the military and all the rest. The founders would have uh, rejected these government mandates, right? If the government mandate says, okay, from now on, uh, you can kill babies in the womb uh, or in California where they had a bill to kill a baby up to 28 days after birth. Right. And the people's people that have no more, no relationship with God or the Bible, their morals are dictated by the government. It's now legal to do this. So that's, but it's okay. It's like, well, since when does the government set your morals? It's like the Babylon, the king says, okay, I'm going to set your morals. You bow to my statue when I blow the trumpets, or I'm going to burn you. And people say, okay, the government's setting my moral standard. Whatever they tell me, there's no more male or female anymore, you know, so, force, force makes hypocrites. That's an incredible quote because you see that even with mask mandates or any number of things where people will comply with something that they don't believe or put merit into. But uh, I, I really want to go in this restaurant. I really want to do this thing. Really want to fly. So I don't. They, they could have made this the law. You know, just put your finger on your nose and you have to do that when you fly. You know, until we say it's like it. It does make hypocrites. And I, I think when when a people comply with a moral code that they're not morally in line with, it does lead towards the decay a little bit of, of that society. 
They're worshiping a God they don't really believe is true, but it's like, we're going to die if we don't. Or, you know, they have a choice to either comply or to flee, which really created America. It's people that fled that kind of force. Yeah. So you have, for most of world history, you have kings. And it's this hierarchical system. If you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're enemy of the king, you're dead. And the king of England became the biggest king on the planet. America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. And so I get into in the book where the founders got the idea of having a government without a king. And they ultimately look back to ancient Israel, that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. And so it's called the Hebrew Republic period of time. It's the Pentateuch, you know, Moses, the first five books, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, and then the uh, book of Samuel up until where you get Samuel um, anointing King Saul. And so the on 1400 BC, Israel comes out of Egypt. For 400 years, there's no king. This is a total anomaly in world history. Hmm. A nation with millions of people and no king. And it worked because every single citizen was taught the law and they were personally accountable to God to follow the law. And it worked as long as the priest taught the law. And then it says that the priest stopped teaching the law. So they did. Yeah, here's Eli, the high priest. His own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. He's not even teaching the law to his own kids. And then a Levite with a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And you're scratching your head thinking, what's this Levite doing with a graven image? Isn't that one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have them. And then another story of Levite with a concubine. The law says the Levite's to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman he's not even married to. He's not following the law. And then he's traveling and they're surrounded in a house by sodomites. Something about that behavior that appears at the very last stages of a people ruling themselves. This casting off of self-restraint, this abandonment to passion. The poor girl's raped to death, to death, and by the time you're grossed out by the story, you read this line, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Mm, Why? Because yep. the priests had stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. Turns into domestic chaos, and then when there's rioting and killing and mayhem, the people said, we want someone to come along and restore order. And that's when a king comes along and he says, I can restore order. I just need some emergency powers. Yeah. And the rubber band snaps back into the hands of a king, and it never goes back to where it was before. And so, um, so anyway, so America's founders in colonial New England look back to this period uh, of the Hebrew Republic, the pre-King Saul period. Yet the King of England looked to the King Saul and on period. So both looked <laughs> to the Bible as their authority. But the uh, the pro Protestant reformers, the John Calvin, these Puritans, they looked to the pre-King Saul. And the king of England and the king of France, the king of Austria, they all look to the post-King Saul, the anointed king. So King Saul is the dividing point, not just in ancient history, but even affecting uh, since then. Wow. So so the um, uh, in 1517, Martin Luther started the Reformation. In 1529, uh, the Muslims surround Vienna, and, uh, and then the, the king of Spain, Charles V, uh, is trying to fight the Muslims and trying to stop the Reformation. And he tries for decades, but he finally can't. And so he makes a deal with the Protestants called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And this treaty is the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants and basically says um, 
the king decides what's going to be believed in his kingdom. So look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want in your kingdom. We just need to work together against this Islamic invasion. And so Europe, after this, began to break up to where different kings believed different things. And you had to believe the way your particular king did. And so England was Anglican. Scotland was Presbyterian. Holland was Dutch Reformed. Northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran. Switzerland, Calvinist. And Greece was Greek Orthodox. Russia was Russian Orthodox. And, and then Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland stayed Catholic. And if you did not believe the way your king did, you were persecuted and you fled. So now we're picking up with England. Um, and- let me ask you, now, now you, you, your website, AmericanMinute.com, you have you have articles on just countless numbers of, of things throughout history. Now, some of the things we're going through today, there's a couple of things we're pulling from. I want to make sure and highlight those to people. So they're they're wanting to, you know, deeper dive into uh, these things. Um, we got one here called the Star Chamber, uh, persecution of Christians, pilgrims fled to Holland, then to England. So you can kind of break down that storyline there. This is something you want to, I mean, if you're interested in this things, you can go through these with your kids. You can go through these with your grandkids. You can go through quickly and efficiently yourself. If, you, if you're intimidated by a big, thick book, you're like, hey, you can take 15 minutes and scroll through one of these, you know, takes you longer than American Minute. The title's slightly misleading. But but in a few minutes, you can become pretty sharp on a topic through a PDF on a wide array of things. And so I want to make sure people know also, not just this conversation, but if you're at the Thanksgiving table and you're getting feedback from your nephew who just you know spent his first couple of months at a state university and he's kind of telling you how things really are, uh, you, you might want to have access to this site, AmericanMinute.com, because Bill Federer really keeps the receipts. Uh, lined up there and documents these things really well. Is that is that a fair assessment, Bill? Yes, yes. And picking up with that Star Chamber one. And so what's that? So you had the King of England uh, was the head of the Anglican Church, and he um, wouldn't let you make up your own prayers because you could make up a prayer that's wrong. <laughs> so the government wrote all the prayers down, put them in a book of common prayer. And when you wanted to pray, you just opened it to the right page and read the prayer. And if you were caught preaching or caught with a little Bible study and you're making up your own prayers, the, the FBI would not, would kick in the door and arrest you and drag you before a government hearing room called the Star Chamber because it had stars on the ceiling. And it was sort of like a January 6th hearing room. And they would uh, uh, twist your arm and brand you on the face as a heretic and cut off your ear and make you confess to something you didn't do. And then they would put you in a cell and just let you rot away for days, weeks, months, years. And um, and so this is what was going on in England. So they had a uh, an Anglican archbishop, William Laud, and he would send spies uh, into churches to listen to the pastor's sermons. And if they said anything against the king's ordinances, uh, they were called to having a hearing at this January 6th hearing room, right? <laughs> They would be accused of, you know, plotting an insurrection or something, and and they were arrested. And so the Star Chamber was like this notorious place, and uh, they, you know, cut your nose in half. And anyway, uh, so the um, the individuals were questioned for perjury and self incrimination. And matter of fact, it was so serious that it resulted in America coming up with the uh, the Fifth Amendment where no person shall be compelled in a criminal case to uh, testify against himself. 
right? The, so the, the whole idea of right to remain silent. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's where you come plead the fifth. You don't have to say yeah. anything. So, um, so sixteen thirty-seven, uh, William Laud punished religious dissenters. One was named William Prine, P-R-Y-N-N-E, and he objected to the state's control over religious matters. And William Prime was put in a pillory. That's a wooden thing in the middle of the square uh, where they put your head through it and your hands through it. And they would, um, you know, leave you there. But uh, they had his ears cut off and branded on the cheek with the letters SL for seditious libel. And, of course, the um, uh, Puritans referred to it as the sign of Laud because it was Archbishop William Laud, L-A-U-D, who was uh, the interrogator. And um, so there was another law that approved the sentence of Pastor Henry Burton for seditious sermons, and it resulted in his ears being cut off and him being imprisoned. And um, another Man. was John ba- John Bastick, and he uh, had his ears cut off, thrown in prison. Um, so you, you go through the, the history of this star chamber um, where they would persecute you for not believing with the way the government mandated. And um, so uh, it was during this time that the pilgrims decide to flee. And the pilgrims uh, flee. Uh, one of the groups sell their properties. And they, uh, for those not familiar, so the king was Anglican. The Puritans were members of the Anglican church trying to purify it from the inside. And there were other groups that, that said it's beyond hope of purifying. We're going to meet in secret barns, basements by candlelight. And they would get raided and dragged before that star chamber. So some of these separatists formed the Baptist church and then the Congregationalist church. And then eventually about 60 years later, the Quaker groups, and they were experimenting with different kinds of church government without a king. Some had elders, some were independent congregations. And then of course the Quakers, uh, they were just a society of friends, just a group of people that were Christian friends. And, but, um, but, but they were persecuted. And so the, uh, these pilgrims decide to flee to Holland. Holland was seven provinces that took 80 years of, to break away from Spain. Mm. And since these provinces believed slightly different things, they had a little give and take when it came to religion and sometimes a little bit more immoral, but they were willing to put up with each other because Spain was trying to kill them all. In 1572, the Spanish Furies, uh, the Iron Duke of Alba, went into Holland, Netherlands, and he killed. Uh, like 30,000 in Antwerp, Holland, just went in there and butchered 30,000 people, piles of bodies in the streets simply because they were Protestants. They weren't believing the way the king of Spain wanted them to believe. And so so these seven provinces of the Netherlands teamed up together to break away from Spain, and they had a little give and take. And so they were the most tolerant place in Europe at this time was the Netherlands, was Holland. So these Pilgrim separatists in England decide they're going to flee to Holland. And some of them sell their property, go down to the city, get on the boat. They're being real quiet. They're sitting on the boat. They're about ready to take off when the captain gets suspicious and decides to rob them and turn them over to the police, and they're put in prison. And then another group of these pilgrim separatists decide to sell their property and this time arrange for a Dutch ship to sail up the coast, and they would be waiting in little rowboats and they would row out, get on the Dutch ship, and sail away. Well, the pilgrims showed up a day early. 
and they're in the water. The waves are really rough. The kids are getting sick. And the women say, can we just wait on the shore with the kids? And, you know, then you can come back and get us when we're ready to take off. Well, the Dutch ship comes, the men row out, they're stowing everything on the Dutch ship, and somebody snitched to the government. And the government sends their FBI over the hill or, you know, uh, their Department of Justice, and they arrest the women and children. And the Dutch captain says, well, I don't have any army with me to fight the British on the British soil. And so he pulls anchor and sails away with the men. And you can just picture these women and children on the shore watching that boat getting smaller and smaller until it disappears over the horizon. And for two years, they pass these women and children from one court in England to another, another, another hearing room, another star chamber, another. Finally, a judge said, you really didn't do anything wrong. You're just women and children. Uh, go home. They go, duh, we sold our homes. And so just to get them out of their hair, they put them on a boat, sent them to Holland, and they eventually find out where their husbands were, and they were reunited, and then they settled in Leiden, Holland. So there was a happy ending to that chapter. Wow. It can be a and, terrible uh, feeling for the husbands. It's like, I mean, because you can't jump jump off and swim back or, you know, like, what do you do? Yeah. You, can't, you can't send them a text. Oh, hey, I'm, I'll be back. You know, like you're so limited in your ability to to do anything. It'd be a, the most helpless feeling you could imagine. Yeah. And then they get to Holland and they don't speak the language. They have to work menial jobs. They'll have to work, you know, three jobs a day just to barely get some money together. They're not getting any other ones joining them. It's like a really tough life. So they're not getting any more separatists. And then they're there for 12 years. Um, they do meet the Jews in Leiden. There was Jewish, the Jews were chased out of Spain. So the, the King of Spain tr- first defeats the Muslims uh, in 1492 Granada. And the Muslims had controlled Spain for seven centuries. And then there's lots of assassination attempts on the king. And so the story is that uh, uh, the, the king was thinking that some of the Muslims would be pretending to be Jews in order to stay there and you know plot some attack. Mm. And... Um, and so he decides to do this uh, beginning of what's called the Inquisition. And so some of the Jews convert to Christianity and other ones get on boats and sail to North Africa. Some sail to the Ottoman Empire and then some go to um, Portugal and then some go to Holland. And then they uh, go to settle in the city of Leiden, Holland, which is a big university town. And there's a Jewish rabbi that teaches at the school, but also one of the pilgrims, um, uh, William Brewster. And he's teaching in the okay. school. And, and so the, the Jews would celebrate their Feast of Tabernacles, their harvest sort of festival at the end of the year. And so the thought is maybe the pilgrims got their idea for Thanksgiving from the Jewish uh, Feast of Tabernacles. You know, the harvest is over. Okay. Kind of thing. I've heard of William and, uh, Brewster and, and kind of his his history. So that's interesting how that ties together and where those influences would have come from. Because that would have been a real melting pot of ideas and philosophies and beliefs and, and uh, uh, you know, traditions. What you doing there, Mom? Well, 
Wesley and I got all in the Christmas spirit after decorating, and we decided to make a naughty and nice list. And mm. I have to say, Avery, you're doing quite well. Really? So we're trying to decide who all we're gonna buy my pillow stuff for Christmas. You know, if you use promo code Flyover, you get up to 66% off when you go to mypillow.com. That's a great deal. Can't beat it. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit mypillow.com. Promo code Flyover. Yeah, and so these pilgrims identified with Jews. And they would say, you left the Pharaoh, we left the King of England. You crossed the Red Sea, we crossed the English Channel. You got your promised land, we're, we're looking for our promised land. And so they would be called Christian Hebraists, and they would be experts on Mamanides, a Jewish rabbi, and all the Talmud and all these different things. Wow. And they, they literally saw themselves as carrying on this um, Jewish tradition so much so that they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. And, um, Could you imagine so, now? Yeah. So, so these pilgrims are there in Holland for 12 years. Spain threatens to attack. Uh, and they did several times. One time, the Spanish attacked and surrounded a city. And they, the Dutch broke the dikes to let the seawater in. And it drowned all the Spanish army. Um, and then they would have to rebuild the dikes and then have the, the windmills would be the things that would pump the water over the dikes back into the ocean. And um, But uh, so during this time, you had some of these pilgrim young men joining the Dutch military and 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 then assimilating into the Dutch culture. And these pilgrims realized that they're just going to disappear. They're just going to end up being a little bleep on the world history. And so they decided to leave. They were going to go to Guyana, South America, because they heard of the perpetual spring and the warm weather. But then they heard of the Spaniards called the Spanish Maine, which was the Caribbean and Florida. And a few years earlier, uh, 1565, you have French Protestants called Huguenots or Huguenots. Okay. And they tried to settle Fort Caroline, which is today Jacksonville. So uh, if I can back up. Uh, I know I'm sort of painting a, a picture, but let's back up to France. So France had a, a Queen Catherine de Medici, rich Florence family, the Medicis, and they married their kids to all these monarchs of Europe. And so Catherine de Medici is there in uh, France as the queen and her husband dies. And so she rules in the name of her young son. And when he's you know, 11 years old or whatever, um, he's betrothed to Mary Queen of Scots from Scotland. And then they get married. They're like 13 and 12, you know, and, and for a couple of years. But then that son dies. And rather than this young Mary Queen of Spot, Scots being the Queen of France, Catherine de Medici puts her on her boat, sends her back to Scotland. And of course, that's where John Knox, you know, preaches to her. Okay. Um, and then uh, the Catherine de Medici again is ruling France through another son. And he gets old enough and he dies. And, and then um, finally, the third son sort of pushed her out. But anyway, during this time, Catherine de Medici decides to marry her daughter, Margaret, to the leading Protestant named Henry Navarre, Henry of Navarre. And so about 15% of France was Protestants, Protestant Huguenots. And so they have the wedding in Paris. And a couple of days later, uh, which happens to be St. Bartholomew's Day, there's a massacre. You know, Catherine de Medici pulls the, has them pull the chains across all the streets because every street corner they would have these big stone things with chains so the carriages couldn't ride out of town. And she had him go from house to house, killing the Protestants, like 
30,000 of them. They throw their bodies in the same river. It's red with blood. And then they proceed to go through the whole country of France and kill all the Protestants. So these Protestants are fleeing. And some of these Protestants flee to, to Florida. And they have a little settlement for three years until the Spanish find out about it and wipe them out. And so, um, so the pilgrims say, well, let's not go to Guyana. Let's not go to anywhere that's close to where Spain is because, because of what happened to those French Protestants. We don't want to have that happen to us. So they decide to go to Jamestown, which was started about 14 years earlier. And it was a king-run colony, but it was so far away from, you know, 3,000 miles. They thought the king won't notice them doing their little pilgrim religion. And so they get on a boat and um, there's a storm. It leaks. They have to recock it. And they're going through the, all their food. And they finally get set sail. And they're crossing the North Atlantic in the freezing cold. Wow. And one of them's washed off deck and they fish him back in, you know, with the rope. He's all blue because it's so cold. And they get to the shores of, shores of America and they're 500 miles away from Jamestown. They, sat, they try sailing down the coast, but off of Cape Cod, it's really shallow. You could be a hundred, you know, half mile off coast and it's only six feet deep. They call them the shoals, the sand. And in storms, ships would get stuck. 3,000 ships have sunk off the coast of Cape Cod. Really? It was almost sink. And so the captain says, two dangers, everyone off the boat here at Plymouth Rock. And these old pilgrims say, well, we have a uh, question. Who is going to be in charge of us? The whole world is ruled by kings. And there's no king appointed person in our little group. We were going to go to Jamestown and submit to the king's government. But you're telling us to get off here. They do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. We, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. And so this is a, a polarity change in the flow of power on planet Earth. Instead of top-down rule by kings, it's bottom-up rule by we, just us in this little boat. And this came from their church, their church structure. So it wasn't the Anglican clergy-laity model, right? The clergy does all the ministry, and the laity is lazy and watches. But the, and the king is the head of the clergy. No, the, the congregational model is everybody's a part. Pastor teaches everyone to have their own relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ that died on the cross. And then the pastor coaches each person to become a mature Christian. Read the Bible every day, pray every day, and then plug into the body. Right? Somewhere, you know, nursery, children's church, anything that's alive takes in and gives out. Anything that grows like a muscle has to be exercised. And so everybody's involved. And this congregational model of church government, the king of England didn't like because he liked the hierarchical model because he was at the top. And yet these congregationalists, Puritans branching off of a Baptist church, flee to Holland and then come to America. They simply take their church government and make it their pilgrim government. Now, Bill, let me ask you a question. At that, at that moment, so, you know, Columbus came, you know, down the Caribbean and that like into the 1400s. That was all going on. So this is about a hundred and so years later. How many Europeans were there, and what was the the native population at that point, and what was those relationships like at this window? Uh, like if you they got off the boat and they went for a hike, are they going to run into very many Europeans? Is this is this are they pretty isolated there? Was there was there an assumed rule because there was still these colonies and chunks of land were named after or given authority from European nations based on settlements. Uh, what was the, 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 you know, like the population demographics in that window? Right. So, so 
Columbus discovers America in 1492. Mm-hmm. And for a century, the Spanish have a monopoly on the New World. And the Spanish uh, in Central America, the Caribbean, find gold. Uh, Inca, Peru, Portobello, Panama, they put all their ships, uh, gold on the ships, ship it to Havana, ship it back to England. And you had English pirates, French pirates, Dutch pirates robbing the Spanish ships. Uh, the Spanish send people to North America looking for gold. You have De Soto wandering all around, mm-hmm. uh, Coronado wandering all around. Uh, Maine, uh, uh, there was a Spanish guy named Gomez, and so they called Maine the land of Gomez. And um, and in uh, Paris Island near South Carolina and, and Georgia, uh, 600 Spanish land in like the 16, oh, excuse me, the 1530s to try to start a settlement. It gets freezing cold. They have 100 African slaves and they run off and live with the Indians. People say, well, the first slaves came to America in 1619. Uh, No, they didn't. They came in the 1500s with the Spanish expedition. They ran off and and assimilated with the Indians. Um, And so Spain, in in North America, there was no gold. Uh, So it was, they gave up wanting to colonize North America. And then you had uh, uh, these these pirates robbing them, and uh, the pirates would get Spanish gold and then have to go somewhere with it. So what do you do? The, the King of England would say, or the Queen Elizabeth would say, we'll give you a letter of mark, which says we're not going to ask questions of where you got your gold, but if you bring it back to England, uh, I get a percentage. Okay. So you can spend it here. I just get a, and so that turned into companies. And so... Uh, during the Middle Ages, there's no companies because it's a sin of usury to pay or receive interest. And once the Reformation happens, you had uh, England has a Muscovy company. They were going to first go north of Russia to get to China, but then they freeze in the ice and they turn it into the Muscovy company. And then they started the British East India Company. And it was a win-win for the king. He spends nothing, risks nothing, but he gets a percentage of what comes in. Yeah, it's a good business. And so then... The Dutch start the Dutch East India Company, and anybody could invest in a boat going to Indonesia. When it came back filled full of nutmeg, you got to pay the profit. If the boat sank, they invented insurance companies. If you wanted to sell your interest, they invented the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. And so that all goes back to the Dutch. But companies were a new thing. And so you had the Virginia Company, and it settled Jamestown. But they were looking for gold. The first boatload of stuff sent back from Jamestown to England was filled full of iron pyrite, fool's gold. They thought they'd struck it rich gold, but it's just a bunch of worthless rocks. And um, then you had uh, the, that company went bankrupt. They had 500 people die, the starvation, Indian attacks, even reports of cannibalism. I mean, it was sort of uh, providential. The pilgrims did not land there. But the, the pilgrims had no money, and so they approached investors in England that started the London Company. And they financed these pilgrims, and the pilgrims, again, get blown off course from Virginia. They're landing in Massachusetts. They do this flip of taking their church government, making it their community government. And, um, and so that's why we look back to the pilgrims as this model of self-government. But basically, New England was a church plant. It wasn't pirates. It wasn't looking for gold. 
They intentionally came over here to start a community. And, um, and so basically, uh, you know, today we're saying, no separation of church and state, don't get involved. Well, back then it was the church that created the state. They took the church government of congregational, everybody's involved, and they were put in this emergency situation where there's no king appointed person in their group. They take their church government, make it their community government. And this is the way it was throughout New England. So you okay. had Pastor Thomas Hooker and his church found Hartford, Connecticut. And the church members say, Pastor, could you do a sermon on how we're supposed to set up our government? And so Thomas Hooker gives a sermon in 1638 titled The Foundation of Authorities Laid in the Free Consent of the People, which got into our declaration, government from the consent of the governed, which is different from Europe because the kings could care less about the consent of the governed. It's the consent of the right. king, and he claims to be divinely put in there. And so the fundamental orders, which is Thomas Hooker's sermon, um, it says the people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. So you have a church group forming itself into a political group. So in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it was the pastors and their churches that created these cities, that created these states. And they would have one, one building called the meeting house. That's where the pastor would teach the Bible, and that's where they would do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building to talk about a different topic? Right. And it goes back, the Hebrews had a, a synagogue. The word synagogue means meeting house. That's where the rabbi would teach the law, and that's where they would do their city business. And so these pilgrims and Puritans look back to ancient Israel as this model of self-government without a king, that first 400 years before King Saul. And um, and so, so again, America started with the church <clears throat> being involved in creating the government. And this is a century before Europe's Age of Enlightenment. Where you know you got you know John Locke's two treaties of government, and so um, so we looked to the Pilgrims, uh, and uh, they were on good terms with the Indians. And okay. Guanto, um, uh, now, now Jamestown is different, um, and they had uh, different fighting with the Indians and so forth. But the Pilgrims had a fifty-year peace with the Pilgrims with the Indians. And so all those people that say, well, the pilgrims, this, that, they're terrible. No, that, that's the pilgrims were very nice and they got along with the Indians. And the reason was, was Squanto. And so and, and people probably know the story, but for those that don't, um, uh, you had these English, Dutch and French pirates that were robbing Spanish gold, but they had also come to the coast of America and sometimes lure Indians on and take them to Spain and sell them into slavery. And that's what happened to this one named Squanto. And the story is that some monks in uh, Spain uh, purchased him and gave him his freedom. And then he hitchhikes his way to England and he meets some family and he lives with them and he learns English and he gets a job and he's working there. And then he finally finds a, a business interest that has a outfit in Newfoundland for fishing. And so he gets, goes over to Newfoundland. Then he finds another ship headed toward the coast of Massachusetts. And so he, Gets there and gets off the boat only to find his entire tribe is dead. Ah. And William Bradford says that three years earlier, a French ship had been shipwrecked at Cape Cod, you know, because of the shallow shoals. And the Indians um, never left watching and dogging the survivors until they killed them all. And a few of them, they made sport with them, using them worse than slaves. Well, one of them must have had an illness and the Indians did not have any immunity and it wiped out the tribe. So as tragic as that is, had Squanto not 
been kidnapped, he most certainly would have died. Anyway, Squanto's living with the next tribe, the Wampanoag, and the pilgrims settle right at where Squanto's old stomping ground was. He got blown off course, right? And um, the other tribes wouldn't touch that land because of those, all the death that was there. And so the, the pilgrims land on the one spot that was, in a sense, not claimed by any tribe. And half of the pilgrims die the first winter. And the spring, uh, Squanto comes walking boldly into their camp. And uh, you can just picture the conversation. Oh, you guys from London? Yeah, I used to live there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, oh, yeah, the pub down on Warp Street and oh, St. Right. Chapel, you know, it's all this. It's like, oh, yeah. And then he says, oh, here I grew up here. This is, this is my, it's my old stomping ground right over the hills of spring. And, and William just Bradford. An invaluable says, resource. Holy smokes. Yeah, William Bradford, the governor of the Pilgrims, said he, he, that Squanto was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. And he taught them how to plant corn. I said, we tried planting corn. He goes, no, you got to take some fish and dig a hole, put the fish in, then put the kernel in, then cover it with mud, and the decomposing fish will fertilize the soil, and you'll have a nice stalk. And then he taught them how to take the corn and put it in a pot and shake it over a fire and make popcorn. And then he taught them how to catch beaver. It took 40 years worth of beaver skins for these pilgrims to pay off those investors, that London company, for financing their boat ride. One of their ships full of beaver skins got captured by Muslim pirates and taken to Morocco and they sold the crew into slavery. So they even had to deal with that. And uh, But Squanto uh, taught them how to go down to the riverbank and squeegee in the mud and catch eels and clams and then lobsters. And and then he teaches them how to fish. And they said, oh, we tried fishing. He goes, no, no, these are salmon, they spawn. This river is going to be packed in a couple of new moons, you know? And then... Um, Squanto was their interpreter and put them on good terms with the other Indian tribes. And uh, one of the stories, the chief, Massasoit, got sick. And the pilgrim, Edward Winslow, uh, knew a little medicine. And so he goes there and doctors the chief, and he gets better. And, of course, the fine print is if you doctor a chief and the chief dies, you die. (laughs) So a little serious if the doctor is going to doctor somebody, right? Um, But uh, so because of Squanto and because of the good relationships with the Indians, Massasoit and his men came with, there were 90 Indians with their deer and turkey. And since half the pilgrims died, there was about 50 pilgrims. So the first Thanksgiving almost had twice as many Indians as pilgrims. And... um, they have their, you know, puddings and their turkey and all their food. And at the end of the day, the Indians roll up in their blankets and they wake up and they're still there. So that Thanksgiving goes on a second day. The end of that, the Indians roll up in their blankets and the next day they're still there. So the first Thanksgiving went on for three days. And, uh, you know, the boys did foot races and arm wrestling and all that kind of stuff. And um, so um, the, the narrative that they were terrible and everything that is something called deconstruction. And it's a socialist tactic where you go into a country and you tell them negative things about their founders mm-hmm. so that people will emotionally detach from them. They'll be embarrassed. They'll want to back away from And then they'll back away from everything they did and everything they stood for. And then you get the kids into a neutral position where they're open-minded. What are all the belief systems out there? Since you just shot down everything I've been taught and where I came from, I'm open-minded to what's out there. And then they give their pitch 
for socialism or LGBT or trans or Sharia Islam. So it's a sales technique. Mm -hmm. If I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is tell you a bunch of negative stuff about the toothpaste you're currently brushing with. You're still brushing with that stuff? Haven't you read the article? It'll eat the enamel off your teeth. You're like, ooh, really? Right. So you're repulsed by it. Now I have you in a neutral, you're open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there? And then I give you my pitch for this brand new tartar controlled breath freshener toothpaste, right? So it's a drive neutral reverse. And that's what they do. They go into the classrooms, tell the kids negative things about the founder, took land from Indians, sold people into slavery. They were bad, bad, bad. And these kids are like, ooh, they're repulsed. Now you got the kids in a neutral. And then you give them your pitch for whatever socialist tough future you want for them. And um, so it's a the same way that the left will spin news stories and taint it in a certain perspective to advance their agenda. They twist history stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's no God in their worldview, there's no absolute right. There's no absolute. If you're just pushing an agenda, so Islamists do this. They come into a country, they destroy the country's previous history. They destroy the Greek churches and you know they even would destroy the hindu temples they destroy all that and they would bring in their new beliefs and so that's what socialism wants to do it wants to destroy the past and then bring in their new beliefs and um but anyway you go back to the pilgrims they gave you a present and that present is you get to be the king of your life with a little k and then all of us together are the king of the country it's a citizen-based model. And so it's uh, Romans 13, you got to submit to the government. Well, no, it says submit to the governing authorities. Who's the ultimate governing authority in America? It's we, the people. Politicians are your servants. You hire them, you fire them. It'd be silly for a king to have to obey his servant. And so in America, what makes America great is you get to be in charge of your life. And all of us together are in charge of the country. And so for our founders, for all their human faults, they gave you that present, right? Uh, And so it's up to you whether or not you're going to give that present to your kids. Do they get to be in charge of their lives or are you going to surrender back to a king, to a tyrant? You know, the Constitution, uh, they took the power of the king and they broke it into three branches. They broke it federal to state level. They tied it up with 10 handcuffs. All the Constitution is is a way to take power and separate it, take the Tower of Babel and scatter it. In a sense, all the Constitution is is a way to prevent a president from ruling through mandates and executive orders. Yeah, that's the goal. They wanted to prevent one-person rule. So we we look back to the pilgrims, and I know I didn't get through all my um, American Minute uh, postings there. Well, Um, I I love it. Well, last, last question then. That was an isolated date, and then it became an official holiday much later, but they probably didn't call it. Thanksgiving at that moment. What time of year did that actually take place? And why was this actually chosen to take place now in November? Yeah, well, it was harvest time. And so they, the William Bradford and then uh, Morton's relation talk about that the, the harvest was brought in and they wanted to uh, give thanks to God for it. And so it was, you know, at, at the end of the summer and, and the fall period of time. And um, but back then they had a living relationship with God. So when things were bad, they would have days of prayer. When things were real bad, they would have days of fasting and prayer. And when things would turn around, they would have days of Thanksgiving. Mm. Matter of fact, several colonies, you know, Connecticut, others, they would have an, an annual day of fasting proclaimed by the governor. 
And then it usually was a was Good Friday. And um, but it was almost on on an as needed basis, right? So the governor would set the date of when we're going to have their day of prayer. Um, And so uh, you had during the revolution, you had days of prayer, days of fasting. I mean, two months before the Declaration of Independence, the same Continental Congress had a day of fasting. And then after the Battle of Saratoga, uh, we have the first national day of Thanksgiving, right? After the Declaration, we Mm -hmm. have this victory of the Battle of Saratoga, the Continental Congress, declares a day of thanksgiving. And then after we're a nation, then uh, George Washington has a day of thanksgiving after the the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were put in place. I mean, he's thanking God for our government. So obviously he didn't think that the government was supposed to outlaw God. Uh, But then you had, you know, during the um, War of 1812, James Madison has days of prayer, days of fasting, there's a cholera epidemic in 1849, and the President Zachary Taylor has a day of fasting. Uh, in the Civil War, Lincoln has two days of fasting, and then Lincoln has the first annual day of Thanksgiving. So rather than having an as-needed basis, Lincoln made it an annual first uh, last Thursday in uh, November, and um, uh, and then you know you had. Uh, you know, Truman made the National Day of Prayer an annual event, and Reagan made the National Day of Prayer the first Thursday in May. And um, but uh, but it was this idea that you pray and God will intervene. So they weren't deists. Deists believe that God made everything like gears of a clock, the laws of nature, and and so yeah, he he made everything, but he's not involved. Right. None of them, not even Ben Franklin, believed that. They all believe you could pray and God would interpose into our affairs and turn yep. things around if we repent it. AmericanMinute.com, you lay this out so beautifully. I think this is an important conversation for people to carry into this Thanksgiving holiday. Who is the king in America? Where did we come from and why? It is a complex, complicated bag of nuts, and you cut through it with a tremendous amount of clarity that's very rare today. Uh, we have a lot to be thankful for uh, in this country, but we also have a lot we need to be praying for and fasting for because we need breakthroughs for the salvation of this country uh, more now than ever. It does feel like everything you value is under attack. And uh, I thank you for bringing truth and light to this, because these ideas can sit next to the Marxist ideas that are being perpetuated by the media, the universities, and so many outlets. And uh, that's why we continue to want to have you on this show. Break down these holidays. We're going to do one on Christmas. We're going to break down these as we go forward in the future. AmericanMinute.com. You guys can find everything from Bill Federer there. And uh, check out his book, Who is the King in America? This is one you should have sitting around. Even if you don't think you have the time to read it, you're going to want this sitting on your coffee table because it's a great reminder of what we're about and where our hope lies. Bill, thank you so much for being a friend of the Flyover Conservative Show, for Stacy and I both. And uh, we, we value your friendship so much. You have an incredible mind and you're a great gift in these times. Well, you're doing a great work, and I'm honored to be on with you, and um, blessings to all the viewers. Mom? Well, 
Wesley and I got all in the Christmas spirit after decorating, and we decided to make a naughty and nice list. And mm. I have to say, Avery, you're doing quite well. Really? So we're trying to decide who all we're gonna buy my pillow stuff for Christmas. You know, if you use promo code FLYOVER, you get up to 66% off when you go to mypillow.com. That's a great deal. Can't beat it. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit mypillow.com. Promo code FLYOVER. I'm excited to announce that we're having our biggest Christmas sale ever. You get our brand new six-piece My Towels for only $29.98. Or rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper as low as $99.99. Or how about MyPillow bed sheets for as low as $24.98? There's something for everyone. Duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more. Well, I know my pillow products make for the perfect Christmas gifts, so I'm going to extend my money back guarantee until March 1st, 2024. So go to mypillow.com now or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code to get huge discounts on all my pillow products. For example, you get our six piece towels for only $29.98, or get your very own my pillow bed sheets for as low as $24.98. It's our biggest Christmas sale ever. Get all your shopping done now while quantities last. Our founding fathers evolved the idea that you and I have within ourselves the God-given right and the ability to determine our own destiny. But freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. There's not one thing that you can buy at a grocery store today for a dollar. And it feels like a scary time, but it doesn't have to be scary for us. We may not be able to control the government or what they're doing with our spending or what happens with inflation, but we can control what we do. This is one ounce of silver, but you might have bought a one ounce silver that, you know, you paid $80 for it because it had a picture of Elvis on it. It doesn't matter what's on it. This is worth the spot price of silver that day. And so it's important that you're buying silver and not stories. And number two, that you're buying it from a broker that does not charge you a commission when you go to sell it. And so I know when I go to sell it, I don't want to pay a commission based on the increase. I only want to pay a commission based on the purchase of it that day. So when I go to sell it, all of that profit belongs to our family. We've known Kirk for over 25 years. His dad was a mentor of ours when we were first married. It's a family that I completely trust. For you to be able to connect with them, all you have to do is go to flyovergold.com. There's a place you can fill out your information. Someone from Dr. Kirk's team will give you a call to set up an appointment to help to answer your questions. It doesn't cost you any money whatsoever. Or you can call 720-605-3900. I am so glad that we did. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Flyover Conservatives podcast with David and Stacey Whited. Please subscribe, hit the notification bell, and leave us a comment below. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's podcast, share with those who came to mind. Be blessed and make it a great day. Thank you.